All right, welcome back, guys. This is an episode number 60 of my show and the first one um, for the Media Camp, Brandon, which will be the new name of the show. If you haven't heard my previous announcement, I'm renaming the show and changing the format a little bit. Uh, and this time I will be interviewing the very best content creators, people who are coming from all walks of life, marketers, comedians, CEOs, people who are able to capture attention build their brand, people who are not afraid to share their opinion, who who are touching others by creating engaging video, audio, or written content. And I'll be sharing practical insights from how they are doing what they're doing, how they're connecting with their audience, but also some of their life-related decisions because they did, how did they get to where they got to? So it's gonna be super fun. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It is nothing like another boring marketing podcast that nobody wants to listen to, myself included. So for an interview number 60, I've got somebody who calls herself Unapologetic Truth Teller. And she is, she was a startup CMO and entrepreneur and a phenomenal TED speaker and a B2B marketer. Her name is Katie Martell. Uh, Right now, she's a marketing consultant and communication strategist. Um, And Katie's one of those people who are fearlessly sharing their unfiltered opinions with the world and stand behind them. There really aren't many people like that. So it's really my pleasure to share this conversation ahead with Katie. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. So now we're in this uh, weird spot of lockdown and things changing. And you talked a lot about the fact that COVID and changed a lot what marketers do, where we are with brands. Do you think that shift that happened will continue after we, we are in a normal environment in 2021? What do you mean this is not normal? This is, this, you guys aren't used to just staying home all day and uh, <laughs> not traveling and... <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the uh, the lack of weekly, you know, travel. I, 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 my uh, freaking flyer miles are down, and it's been a very remarkably calming experience. But no, it's yes. The answer to your question is yes. I mean, there's that old adage that change begets change, you know, and I we see it. It's just when you're forced into change, the way that a pandemic forces companies to work remotely. Uh, adapt to consumer needs, deal with recession and, and cuts, then you see how quickly companies can adapt despite their best, you know, um, the inertia that keeps them in place most often. So uh, a lot of these changes I think are permanent. I think we're going to see a lot more remote work. I think we're going to see a lot more um, agility within companies that have had to adjust messaging and everything from what they're posting on social to uh, how they're responding to the the protests that are now happening. I mean, right. it created the need for agility that, I mean, that doesn't go away. Once you prove you can be agile, you are now an agile company. Yeah, it's, it's, it's remarkable to see that it applies all to this huge companies like Amazon and all these massive enterprises. They're like, oh, now we're remote and uh, all of those things that uh, have to change, right? Right, exactly. And I think for marketing, the biggest change is now um, consumers asking brands to step up. I mean, we saw a lot of backlash against platitudes. Hey, we're here for you during the pandemic. Um, Consumers wondering, well, what does that mean? Especially in B2B, what does that mean for you, a vendor, to show up for me, the customer? And it forced a lot of companies to, uh, to walk the walk, you know, of the statements they were making. And I think that's actually opened up a really interesting opportunity for B2B brands to, to demonstrate value outside of the product and outside of, of even their thought leadership. Um, a simple switch like 
Microsoft converting all of their retail employees to now become mm. virtual support and training employees for the Microsoft Teams product, which is getting a spike in usage. Creative like pivots and, and ways of leveraging resources to give um, uh, buyers a, a, who have a new set of challenges a, a new type of value. Yeah, I liked what you said, and that resonated uh, a lot with me, I'm sure, with a lot of listeners too, is that you said, you know, just don't send me an email that you care, show me. Show me, don't tell me. That is marketing 101. I'm sorry. We're, we are so good at platitudes. We, you know, I have a PR background. I have written those statements. You know, it's, our job is to, to affect perception. But you know, if perception is reality, then we have to remember that perception is created by every moment that we interact with the customer. It's not what we say, it's what we do. And I think that's exposed a lot of companies who weren't quite ready to step up. Uh, we saw Salesforce, this is a positive example, they stepped up in a big way. You know, um, they had a, a resource center for leaders that just continues to be updated even today, months later, three months after this all started with resources on how to respond to the epidemic, the pandemic, how to galvanize your team. I mean, everything from working remotely to hiring during social distancing. I mean, they responded just simply with a knowledge base and then a set of tools. Work.com is now this, this kind of new response to getting back to work. I mean, it, it really demonstrates if a company like Salesforce, right, who we were just talking before we hit record, yeah. Uh, is just such a massive and and you know uh, pervasive company. You you actually can see some really creative, very agile, almost like you'd expect to see from a startup. And that I think is a great precedent to set. I'd love to see all marketing teams be that agile, that quick, and that eager to give real meaningful resources whenever a customer needs change the way that they have during COVID. And also, what's interesting, I feel like it's. Uh, the sentiment to this Salesforce marketing team that been around probably for a while and they've been in the industry for a while. They know that shortcuts don't really work. Yep. So like, let, what can we do that makes sense uh, that not just like, Oh, let's just put the hashtag in and we're going to get the spike in whatever it is. Right. It's what do we have that can create value. There was another company who's much smaller than Salesforce here in Boston, uh, Form, Form Labs. They create 3D printers. And some of those 3D printers are being used to create the swabs and some of the like the um, face shield pieces that, you know, people needed to create these, these pieces. And instead of saying, hey, use our product, our Form Labs printer to get involved in this fight, they basically said, hey, anybody with a 3D printer, no matter if it's ours or competitors, we're gonna build a way and a little like, just a way of connecting you with the printer to the people who need them, you know, the manufacturer of the products and a way to just to get people to help, uh, regardless of whose loyalty, whatever brand they were loyal to, it was a fantastic way to just say, how can we be most helpful? We can galvanize users who wanna help with the way to help the front lines of the COVID response. I thought that was great and it showed the commitment to value beyond their own brand. They allowed any competitor's product to be used for this and they yeah. just fostered that connection. How, how great is that? It's so, and you know, it's, I think it goes back to the point where every touch point with a customer or with potential customer has to be valuable because we, it creates a certain perception. And it might seem, I think when you're like a marketer, it might seem it's not a big deal. Like I, I'm okay to not do that. But I'll, I'll tell you, like I, I uh, have a, had a good opinion about it, one uh, Chinese company phone manufacturer. And then when it came to a point of getting my re, uh, refund and I had to wait for three weeks, it's that little thing. It's like, it's not a big deal, right? You're, you could wait. It changes my perception. I'm like, who are those people? 
I'm used to Apple Store and you know all that experience. And right. um, it's just the touch points that uh, are hard to nail, but you have to, right? You, you do have to. And this is where all that buzzword talk that industry pundits like me get to say, the customer experience. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about those, those moments of friction where the promise that a brand made doesn't live up to the, the experience that you're having, even if it's post-sale and you're, in your case, returning a product. It, it all matters and it all speaks volumes to what a company really stands for, what they really are about. I mean, marketing really doesn't uh, hold up to scrutiny when the rest of the experience of the business doesn't match. It's that old adage that no amount of good marketing can make up for a bad product or a poor user experience. Marketing is not magic. We are very good at what we do and we can change a lot of, we can create a lot of change in market, but we can't make up for a, a poor user experience. And I think a lot of marketing teams are unwilling mm. to um, kind of either dig into it. It could be a silent organization. They're just not involved. They're not talking or they don't want, they just don't have time to take it on. I, I empathize with that. It can feel like the problem is too big, but I, I would say it, it is now table stakes to compete on experience. We know that. And, and we've heard tech platforms and, and, and mm. industry speakers say that. It, it's now we're seeing with COVID and with the even the response to the protests, we're seeing where companies have either adopted that or just consider it to be lip service. This isn't a yeah. PR problem, you know? There, there's a lot more than that, absolutely. It's, it's the product, it's the, the company, it's the how the collaboration happens or not in the company. Uh, what are the constraints? What are the expectations? There are all of those things that that have fit, that have to fit together. But the customer doesn't see. They're like, "Oh, these guys suck," or yeah. maybe not. And like, right. boom! The instantly they they make a decision, especially in B two C, because I mean they don't have that one year, three year contract. Now you talked. Uh, I loved your TED talk, by the way. It was great. And you yeah. mentioned a little bit about PR at the time of the Second World War. And I was just happened to watch this documentary on Netflix, World War II in Color, and I just had the thought, uh, just happened to be in marketing, I'm like, wow, these guys in Germany, they had so much power, so much control over what people could know, what, could, what they should know. I was curious from your perspective, how do they know how to operate that machine at that time, and what could we learn from that? Oh, I, I love looking back at history and learning from what might seem like uh, inappropriate lessons from history for marketers, but you know the propaganda, you know of the Nazis in in World War. I mean, my God, look at where the father of modern PR mm -hmm. came from. He was he was the inspiration for Hitler's Ministry of Propaganda. I mean, if yeah. you look at that, and we as a marketing industry, we hold up Edward Bernays as this figurehead of oh, he invented modern PR and and not modern PR, but he invented the, the practice of PR. Well, that means that what we do is founded in propaganda. And I, you know, he had, he's famous for saying, you heard me say this in the talk, um, if you can use propaganda in times of war, you can use it in times of peace. And that's where he really uh, brought over the ideas of, of um, information uh, warfare, in a sense, to mm -hmm. the American consumer. He's the reason that um, bacon ever made its way into the American breakfast. He's the reason that department stores exist. He's the reason that celebrities wear certain clothes that are appearing in certain magazines that you can then go buy at a department store. I mean, he really thought about things like product placement. Product placement, like, yeah. Yeah, subversive marketing, which isn't necessarily inherently evil, but it shows where the origins come from. I think where it's shifting today is exactly what we're talking about. This idea that brand is 
customer experience means that the role of marketing is actually less powerful than it was. And there's a reason for that. We now in 2020, many years later, have access to more options than ever before, right? It's an age of commoditization. There's more options. Even in B2B, every single vertical has a million options. You can be selling HR tech. You can be selling MarTech. Hello, we've sold there. Crowded space. You could be selling drone technology. There's yep. always more players because it's never been easier to start a business thanks to cloud computing and um, remote talent, all the things that make you know, modern day business work. What that means is that marketers now have to find new ways to, to differentiate, to break through, but to earn the loyalty of, of customers. Whereas before, in the days of Edward Bernays, it was enough to be the loudest voice in the room. It was enough to just be the most repetitive brand that everyone hears. It was kind of enough to right. be seen. Now, it's not enough to be seen. We have to be seen and trusted, seen and considered aligned to the same values as our buyers. That's why you see all of this um, response from corporations for uh, International Women's Day, Pride mm -hmm. Month, Black Lives Matter. It is now a new realm where like social movements and marketing become intertwined because there are new expectations from customers. Don't get me started, Sergey. I'll talk all day about. <laughs> I know it's your it's your topic. I know it's it's a big it's a big, it's a big topic for you. I know you you spoke you speak a lot. You write super in depth articles on that, which I will touch on in a bit. What do you like in a, in a on a high level? What do you think? companies get wrong about differentiation because everybody talks about differentiation. We see all these great frameworks, but then when we look at the output, like what the hell is this thing? Everybody, it's, you know, results are pretty mediocre. That's interesting. And a, and a very, that's a provocative statement. You've just called all the listeners that are listening right now, mediocre. Uh, nice one. <laughs> Way to start a fight, Sergey. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's like marketing and Elle, Elle actually taught me this. Uh, I know she was on the podcast uh, just she a week was. ago. She's fantastic. Hi, Elle, we love you. Um, Elle mentioned this Hello. to me and she said this the best, that marketing is a very voyeuristic profession. Everyone sees marketing because mm. we all see, everyone in a business sees the output, right? We all see billboards all day. We all see ads. So we all kind of think that we are marketing experts. So no one does that with finance. No one looks at finance and says, I've used Excel and therefore I know all about the CMO, CFO. But they kind of have a tendency to do that with marketing and place unrealistic expectations on marketers. And so when it comes time to create any kind of marketing output, often there are way too many cooks in the kitchen. You can tell when a message has been diluted because of, you know, the founder wanted to have a say or, you know, the head of HR felt that it wasn't, you know, aligned to recruiting needs or whatever it was. Marketing is often never given the lane and the, and the room to do what marketing does best, which is to know the buyer, know the competitive landscape, understand where we need to zig when everyone else is zagging. I mean, there's just, there's a lot that goes into the discipline and the craft of marketing that the rest of the business doesn't understand. And so it becomes a watered down, me too, kind of identical statement. It's really, marketing is a discipline. It is a, you know, a specialty. Unfortunately, it doesn't get that level of treatment. It, it's often just, it's often just there's too many cooks in the kitchen. And so what you end up with are messaging and uh, product positioning that looks just like everyone else because that's where other people feel more comfortable. They feel like, well, we're, we're keeping up with the Joneses, which is the absolute wrong. <laughs> Every marketer is like tearing their hair out because they know that yeah. that is the opposite strategy to what we need. Differentiating, breaking through, unique value props. I mean, it's really complete opposite of what is actually needed. So uh, to say that in a soundbite, most more companies need to give marketing the room to do what marketing does best. They don't that's know. Great, 
That's a great point. And you know, while you were saying that, it makes me think that, like you'd say, you have you have a great VP of marketing, you have a great CMO who comes in, who gets it, who totally understands that the team gets it, but then it can only happen when the CEO is on board. It happens all the time. And I think it comes down to whether or not the head of marketing can manage up and whether the expectations are set appropriately at the board level. I love walking in, I, you know, I'm a consultant and my favorite clients are the ones where the board has set a mandate and the mandate is often go make some noise, go create some buzz, you know, go be the market leader, go position us, go help us be seen as the leaders that we know ourselves to be. Um, if the board doesn't quite know what marketing is supposed to do, the CEO can't articulate the, the, the role of marketing against the business strategy, you end up with these marketing campaigns and marketing messaging that feel aimless because they are aimless. It starts at the core yeah. of the business and what the business is trying to achieve. Are you going to, you know, you're trying to create change in market. Great. Does that mean that you're fighting against the dominant players? So you have to be the challenger brand. Are you all about customer retention? And this is a loyalty play. I think a lot of companies don't quite know what to do with marketing. We are just kind of the fun department that throws parties and you know, it's, it, they don't know what to do with us. And we're not very good at explaining to other departments, our craft. That is so true. That is so true. Like the internal communication is hard and uh, they see marketing as somebody who creates PDFs or sales team and uh, sends a bunch of emails. Let's do an email blast. Okay, <laughs> <Right>. great. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, to be uh, fair, a lot of marketing teams are that. So <laughs> we I, get that it, reputation somewhere. I know. Yes, it is true. Uh, so you, uh, you transitioned, you were the CMO, you were the co-founder before you went to consulting. Talk to me about this transition. I'm curious when, at what point did you realize I want to do it, do it on my own? Oh my gosh. No one ever chooses to be a consultant. I will tell you this straight up. Nobody wakes up in the morning one day and goes, you know what? My dream <laughs> is to be an independent freelance marketing consultant. I mean, some people might dream like that. Um, I had the amazing experience to uh, partner with the former product manager that I worked with at a company called Net Prospects. His name is Aparo Kari, and he was a brilliant product guy. I love Aparo. And um, in like 2014, he, he came to me with this business idea, and he's like, I, I want to start a business, and I, I want you to be part of it. And I thought, this business needs to happen. It was... Um, trying to reinvent the idea of a buyer persona from this like really static PDF thing that no one looked at and was dying in a drawer to this really digital and living, breathing, smart digital asset. Um, and so we, uh, we set out to start a MarTech company. Why not? You know, we had both worked at MarTech firms. I had worked both from the in-house side to uh, also a PR side, analyst firm. I've lived many lives of the world of MarTech. And we, we did it. We did the damn thing. We raised a million dollars. We hired a team. We launched a product. We built a brand. You know, we, we did it. Um, I call it my 18-month MBA. It was a great lesson in um, both failure and success. We had a lot of great highs and um, some lows, but that's entrepreneurship, you know, and it was both the most rewarding and the most difficult job I've ever had. And I, I'm so grateful I've had that opportunity. Um, and so Aparo is still over there. Aparo, if you're listening, like, love you dude and it's it's really a, i look back at mm -hmm. it fondly um what happened though is that like all startups do you know runway becomes an issue and and the martech space is so crowded it's so noisy that it's really really difficult to break through and get the both attention share of attention share of wallet from the marketing buyer and um, even, so even back then right even back then when you were doing it which was like 2016 or so is when i left okay. the business so it wasn't that long ago right. 
but thank you for making me feel old. I appreciate that. No, it, um, it was really, it just kept, it's kept growing. The MarTech industry has kept exploding since 2007, you know, and we, we just, I, we ran out of money and I just needed a, I needed a job. I said, I will, this is what I said in 2016. By the way, it's 2020. In 2016, I said, you know what, you know, I'm going to just take on a few projects. And I was getting married that year. My wife and I were taking a month to go traverse Europe. We were like, I'm not going to join a real company right now. I don't have the mental energy. So I took a few projects, you know, here and there, a little bit of PR, some content, some strategy work. And four years later, I haven't stopped. I'm still doing it. And I'm so grateful for it. Being independent gives you freedom and it gives you flexibility. What's interesting, Katie, is that I see it, it's such a difficult path where at some point, marketing person, uh, just because we speak about marketing, they will get into a consultant. And I, I saw so many profiles on LinkedIn. It doesn't usually last more than a year, two years. Mm-hmm. What was different for you for the, for the experience for this four-year stint that made you stick around? What a thoughtful question. What a really thoughtful question. I think you're the first person to ever ask me that. So thank you. Great, great, great question. Um, I have a background in PR. When I was the CMO of this startup, I was the face of the business and I started to speak on stage. Whereas before I had always gotten other people speaking gigs, written their decks, trained other people on speaking. um, And I became more of a face of that business. And so when I left the business, I still had a decent following on LinkedIn. I had a really great following in an email newsletter. And I just, I kind of said to myself, well, I, I want the world to know that I'm still here. So let me just continue with some speaking and the email newsletter and writing. But like I said, because I became independent, I found my voice. I found an ability to tie in my, you know, my, my identity as a gay woman, for example, and my identity mm-hmm. as a marketer. And so when it became pride season and I noticed a bunch of companies pandering to the LGBTQ movement, yep. I had the freedom to comment on that and write articles and give talks on it. Those articles and talks have grown and only grown my following, grown my aware people. So I became, I had a different, I have a different thing to market now. And it's more like an activist approach to marketing. I'm trying to get our industry to evolve. And it has to do with the collision of social movements and marketing. It could be anything from feminism to guns. It doesn't matter what the social yeah. movement is. Yeah. There's, there's a new set of rules required. And now Four years later, I have the freedom because not everyone can speak publicly about this. If you're at an agency or a company, I have the freedom to tell really difficult truths and push the industry forward. And the response has been what continues to propel me. People saying, thank you for saying what all of us have been feeling, but have no real ability to say. They're scared of losing their jobs. I have nothing to lose. So it's kind of an onus is now on me. To, to tell what I call exceptional truths, what everyone's thinking, but nobody is saying. So, you know, on some days I'm a true consultant. Today I had a marketing training this morning for a tech, a, a 130, you know, mm-hmm. size uh, marketing team for a tech company. Other days I am in front of my industry peers, begging them to change and exposing the dangers of brand pandering. It is, I don't know what I do for a living, but I'm not stopping. I have a documentary that I'm producing on this, this topic, a book. Um, I could not give myself a job title except I'm having the time of my life and I'm doing important work. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great point, Katie. Really, really great point because I, uh, I'm very curious as you could tell. And I looked at all those like VPs of marketing, CMOs, and I'm like, they're almost like not, they almost like, they almost don't exist. Like no, like just LinkedIn profile. I don't see, I don't know what they think. I don't know what their stance is. I kind of see some activity from their company and that's, that's all it is. That's how their career goes by. And then 
and it's almost like it's really disappointing. And I've also found there's just so many constraints that, like you said, they can't say anything. One person that I've been following that I actually interviewed on this show too, Chris Walker, uh, Refine Labs. I don't know if you followed him on from Boston too. Uh, and I just was drawn immediately to his post on LinkedIn because he exposes all the truth and he calls all the BS. And I'm like, my God, like I totally agree with everything. If I would wrote that at my other company, I would not last for too long. Right. Um, and right. so just back to your point. It really is. you know, And you can't expect all marketers to risk their careers by being on the forefront of, of challenging the industry. I have immense amounts of respect for anyone in marketing who can just survive in the changing landscape. I mean, it's not incumbent upon everybody to go be a rabble rouser. But for those of us that like to get up on stage, that have a point of view, that want to change something, we have a responsibility to leverage those talents. I have a knowledge and a toolkit of how to create change in market. I've done it for brands. I've done it for <laughs> unknown brands that now are household. It is, it is a tool set. And I think that tool set is the same tool set that activists use. You look at the Black Lives Matter movement. It only started because of this undercurrent of exceptional truth, something that everyone is feeling but nobody was saying. When somebody says it and gives a name to it and encourages everyone to get behind them, with a clear set of demands and a shared sense of values and also kind of anger and frustration, look at what happens. Global movement, this is marketing. Our job in marketing is very, very similar. We have to set a precedent that things have to change, challenge the inertia and the way things are, but also give people a sense of the future and a way that they can get involved in it, whether it's adopting cloud computing like Salesforce did, convincing mm -hmm. marketers that there's inbound and outbound and that's the way forward, or if we're selling HR technology, there is a way yeah. to create a movement in market. There is, there is very little difference between what activists do and what, um, what marketers do. And I think it's, if more marketers can understand their power, I think some of them are, they can leverage it for good. They can, I, I invite them to join this party of creating change in the world. We can do it better than anyone. So true though. And I, I always thought that like, if you are able to capture attention, you're a marketer. It doesn't matter if you never been a marketer, you never had a title. If you can capture attention and you have something a good, interesting to say. And what's ironic is that all those opinions that usually the split the audience, and I find it with even my posts on LinkedIn, the ones that split the audience, they usually get the most attention. Mm -hmm. uh, they are pretty honest. Uh, they have all these haters, which is good. Uh, and, and it's true, like the power, it's unbelievable. Like I posted uh, about Parda, how Parda sucks. And, uh, I, and, and I, got, I, got, I got all these likes and uh, a few CEOs commented on it and somebody linked uh, from the UK linked another person who could be potentially like from, from marketing operations. I'm like, wow, like this, there's a few lines that took me like 20 minutes to write could actually influence somebody to purchase a $70,000 product and everybody can hit that button. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've identified is because we all have the ability to say anything right now, uh, it scares a lot of companies into um, not taking a stand because they're scared of pissing off some people. But again, it, and this again applies to whether companies are responding in a certain way to Black Lives Matter, if they have an opinion on it at all, should they stay silent, should they comment, but it even applies to their industry. I find that most tech companies mm -hmm. don't have a point of view on the industry in which they operate. And that is such a missed opportunity. As things change, buyers look to vendors to set the path, the path forward. And what an opportunity, as you describe, to say anything. The problem is that we don't wanna piss anyone off. So what we do instead is we say 
nothing of value. We, we come up with platitudes or middle of the road statements. And one of my favorite quotes is the only thing you find in the middle of the road is roadkill. Pick a side, pick a side that is demonstrably aligned with the buyers you want to reach. And don't be afraid to get the haters because the haters are not, if you're doing your job right, the haters just aren't the ones you want to reach. Be there for the people that you matter to because you cannot be all things to all people. But to say nothing means that you're not generating any activity. And I think that's worse. Andy Warhol used to say, don't read what they write about you. And he meant like in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. He said, Me measure it in inches. Just get right. them talking. They're going to talk. Right. You might that's true. But at least they're talking about you. And I do believe that all press is good press. I, am, I'm always, I will always believe that all press is good press. Uh, I would agree. I would agree with that. Uh, you uh, talked a little bit about you. You post a lot on your website and then various sources uh, like Medium, Twitter. You had a post that I thought was interesting. You talked about your first presentation on stage uh, where you talked about Lady Gaga, which I thought yes. was a brilliant, brilliant presentation. How do you uh, how do you come up with this old or this new angles in the old story. Because we all have that, and I find that all these great content creators, they're able to, including comedians, including folks who run like late night shows, they're able to take something that already exists and spin it with the team sometimes, with some help, but to spin it in a way that wows everybody. And you did that too. I'm just curious how, what do you look for? How do you do that? I love that question. Again, great question. Um, I look at comedians like Hannah Gadsby, who kind of blur the lines between what comedy is and social commentary. And it's really an interesting time to be in comedy too. Um, I, I actually, I love that you brought up comedians because they to me are the original content creators and the constant content creators. Um, the answer to your question is not to be afraid to, and I have to live this, I'm gonna say this out loud as a mantra to myself. Don't be afraid to put the pieces that don't seem like they fit together. Um, we are all hodgepodges of various things. Nobody fits into, you know, demographic boxes. I mean, I am a 33-year-old white gay woman. Great. What does that really say about me? Not much. Everyone knows me for being a truth teller and to, for being other things. And we have to embrace the things that make us us. And that means bringing our diverse points of view to market and not being afraid to put the pieces together. That's what, has, for me, has led to um, it, the Lady Gaga thing was hilarious. I was just obsessed with Gaga when I was like 23. This is a talk 10 years ago. So for me, it was like, if I'm going to look at marketing, I'm going to look at it through the lens that I bring. Looking back, you know, you laugh at how stupid the presentation was, but that lesson stays with you. You have to, you have to mm -hmm. embrace the things that make you, you bring that to the table because that's how new perspectives come out. You have to be willing to just accept that you're different and you're going to look at things differently. And that's a strength. That's why when you hear things about diverse teams, it's not about the color of their skin, it's the experiences they bring to the table. Marketers are some of the most resilient, creative people I know. We have to start looking for talent outside of the normal kind of pipelines that we think we, the people that have the marketing degree and that have you know, five years of experience at a startup. Marketing is about people and ch changing people and changing minds. Go find creative talent from exceptional places and you're gonna have new ideas and a fresh way of looking at the world. And if you're somebody who's been holding back because you don't hear anyone else saying things the way that you see them, that is a calling from the universe to say them louder and be like Sergey and go on LinkedIn and press post and see what happens. It is a calling for the world, from the world, for you to find your voice. That is so true. That is so, so true. I'll, I'll have to cut that out into a shorter uh, video clip to post on LinkedIn separately. 
I'll take that. Well, I give two thumbs up to Sergey. How's that? Hire Sergey today. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. Uh, and what's interesting, you, you brought up that, you know, you look back at 10 years ago, this Lady Gaga speech, is not, not, not that great. And I mean, of course, I totally agree, but it's also, it just brings up this point that Sid Godin made is like, look, I'm like 8,700 or 800 blogs in uh, and 80% of them are below average. And it's just such an amazing perspective to say, like, look, a lot of work is pretty mediocre, but there will be ones that are, that, that are like, that hit it. It's like home runs. And everybody would be like, oh my God, it's so amazing. But nobody goes back in history. I'm a, I'm a big softball player. Um, if you know me, I like to, you know, my website has my nickname for anyone that doesn't know it. Go check it out. I have a nickname for my softball team. And um, softball and baseball is a, a game of averages. You know, you might get up at the plate four times in a game. And if you get one hit and you make it to base once, that's considered decent. You know, it's, you're never going to, and I feel like I'm just laying out cliches now, but it's like you get up to the plate every time. You're not going to hit a home run every time, but the more you get up there, the better you get, the more you build these muscles that help you just improve your game. Writing, thought leadership, content development, content creation, comedian, or otherwise, that's what it's about. It's a, it's a mark, it's a muscle and a, and a muscle memory that you develop and you have to be willing to put out some really terrible shit in order to really yes. find the nuggets that are good. Exactly. What's the worst that happens? I mean, you publish something yeah. that people disagree with. Great. You sharpen your point of view. You publish something that nobody reads. Well, then nobody's read it. What's the big deal? I think the biggest risk is to say nothing. And if you try to wait until there's the right moment to become someone with an opinion, you're too late. Do that work, even if it's private. I'm a big fan of diarying and um, uh, proprioceptive writing, mm -hmm. which is the process of looking back on what you've written and asking what you really mean by it and digging into your own mind to figure out oh, what you so mean good. by it. Yep. It's so, it's painful, man. It really is a yeah. difficult process. But if you can do that work, um, I think the, the book is called Writing the Mind Alive. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a lesson in how to, you basically just sit in a room for 20 minutes put on like Baroque classical, light a candle. They're very particular about this. You get unlined paper and you go and you write and then you stop and you go, what do I mean by that? And you just keep digging into your points more and more and you get to some really interesting takeaways and aha moments. We'll uh, link it in the show notes. Would you please? Thank you. Uh, writing the mind alive, please. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, what, what's, what's, uh, you, you bring up the super important point that I wasn't aware of recently is that the creativity is a muscle that is mm -hmm. trained. I did not know that. I, I read it in the book, um, Chase Jarvis, yep. a famous yep. photographer. He talks in, uh, I think it's called Creativity, or uh, I think it's Creativity, uh, his book. And he, he basically lays out this whole process. And I was like, wow. Like, so, and he actually gives example of Lady Gaga is that he's a machine now because he was, she's training her muscles, like lifting weights. Right. It's exactly, I, my wife is a personal trainer, so she listens to this, she's going to laugh, but you, you, don't, you don't start with the 50 pounders right away. You have to start somewhere, and the more you do it, the better it gets, and the more easily it becomes. Writing is also a muscle, Anne Hanley mm -hmm. talks about this, and we should link to her book too, Everybody, Everybody Writes. Um, excellent book to help everyone realize that they can all write better, but that they all have something to say. I, I'm really amazed that, that it's, I feel very grateful for having the ability to communicate. I know people that cannot express what they feel. And I feel like that is, you're trapped, you know? And I think that's a really awful way to go through life. We all deserve the ability to express how we feel. And so, you know, if we can get to the point of changing minds of other people, man, are we lucky? But it starts with being able to identify 
what you're feeling and how to communicate that to somebody. And it's the building blocks of marketing. It's the number one skill that we all need to get better at, especially in a world where we're polarized and there's no such thing as nuance and we are fighting daily with each other online. I mean, talk about the need to communicate with empathy and with clarity and with persuasion. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's some really good insights there. Uh, I was curious, so, so you've been in a consul- consultant role for four years. Uh, it's super challenging to, to generate your, let's say, own mini pipeline. Uh, what have you found that marketing yourself that you haven't anticipated or maybe something that was a little bit controversial and something counterintuitive? That's a good question, too. I, you know, you're giving me time to reflect on things I haven't reflected on. I think it... Uh, and I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but you really, when you become a consultant, you, you are the product, right? It's your skills, expertise, and point of view that people buy and adopt. So you really have to know what that is. Like product development 101 is figuring out where you play in the world of buyers, right? Jobs to be done theory. They're hiring you to achieve a job. And it's, it's not always, one. yeah, it's not always the job that you think you have. Like when I left my startup, my skill set is like top funnel, awareness, PR, brand, buzz, content, comms, you name it, events, I am social, give me the top of the funnel and I will make stuff happen. But I realized it, kind of going to market with that wasn't quite right. I didn't actually enjoy the work. <laughs> I'll be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I actually found it to be like not what got me out of bed. And I, I, you only mm-hmm. figure that out with trial. And if, so if you're somebody who's trying to uh, become a consultant or freelance, find out what you really bring to the table. It may not be what you think. And you can go through a few exercises, just like asking your former colleagues or your friends what they see and get out of your own head of what you think you are. Um, A lot of times it will surprise you and it will open up new doors, but you have to be willing again, like when you're finding your voice, to find what you uniquely bring to the table and being willing to say, I don't really know anyone else that does this. That is, an, uh, that is an opportunity. As long as you're solving business needs, that is an opportunity. So for me, my consulting practice is not the, the majority of my business. It is what I do, but I get to be very selective mm-hmm. about who I work with because I know now what kind of cultures I align with, what kind of objectives and goals you know, fit me. I am not for everyone and everyone is not for me. And that keeps me clear to focus on the, the brands where I can kill it, I can do great work, but I also feel fulfilled and like a part of their, uh, an extension of their team. That takes some really strong self-reflection. And you have to yeah. be willing to say no to projects, which is like really difficult if you're, if you need money, <laughs> you need money tomorrow. <laughs> but but it's, it, yes, yeah, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna say like, this is a very good position from the leverage perspective. And you brought the opposite. When things, the opposite when end. things are good, it's really easy to look back and say, mm, pick your, you know, pick your clients. When you need money, you need money. Just go and, 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 but it's all, you know, when you're starting out, it's worth saying yes to a lot of things just to figure out where you fit. You're going to fail. You're going to not get some business. All of that will help you figure out what that path should be. So yeah, it's easy to look back and say, I had all the answers four years ago. I didn't, I still don't. It, you, do, you do make it up as you go, but there is power in that agility and that ability to kind of, um, read your instincts and, and, and hone your instincts. It's also interesting where if you need the money, most of the time, the type of clients you attract are the totally the wrong clients. They either don't know what they want or they don't know how to pay or mm. they don't understand their problems. So you, you generally are pretty terrible, terrible to work with. And then you end up understanding that later. You're like, oh my God, there's just no way you could have done anything for them. The red flags that I learned to look out for are um, payment terms, if they want to, you know, 
really delay payments and there's really no good reason why. Like I understand some bigger firms have long, you know, payment cycles. That's fine. Uh, some that want to do like a really short trial before they really dig in. Eh, a lot of times they're not really willing to trust you. And, and that lack of trust is going to expose itself yeah. in other ways. Um, if some, some have had some really weird onboarding requests, like there have been times where I have engaged with a client and I'm, I'm so turned off by just the process of doing business with them before we even start the work that I've been like, you know what, I'm going to back out. I've like sent flowers and I've been like, I'm sure there is another solution for you, but it isn't me. And it's, you have to listen to your gut because the process of, of onboarding with a client until they sign the contract is going to be indicative of what it's like to work with them after. So if it's a nightmare, you can say no, you can back off. That way you won't wake up every day going, oh, why did I sign that deal? Why did I say yes to this? It's almost like a honeymoon, right? It's supposed to be the honeymoon. And even if it's already bad, like what's going to happen? <laughs> like you said, right? You have to be willing to put the guardrails in place of what you're willing to put up with and what you're not willing to put up with. So, so Katie, what do you, so you don't focus too much on the comms and, and brand PR. What do you, what is, what excites you right now with uh, the clients that you work with? I really love talking to companies that are in that high growth mode. They are, you know, maybe they just have a series B in place or, they've just gotten a new round of funding and it's, it's, they're not pre-revenue, right? There's some traction. Um, I like to say that I've always helped companies be seen as the leaders they know themselves to be. So oftentimes it does translate and, and manifest itself in PR and choosing the right PR firm or mm -hmm. figuring out what that content strategy is that helps them be seen as thought leaders or really training the team to stop thinking so product centric and start thinking more market customer facing, um, you know, having a, a clear point of view, um, I wouldn't say I build category builders. I mean, there are plenty of Andy Raskins out there that do great work in helping a company develop a category. I like to help companies figure out how to put some of the pieces together, um, whether it be tools, you know, agencies, people that have to hire other freelancers around this, this world of content, PR, brand, comms, top funnel, because there's a lot of easy ways to waste money there where I think a lot of companies either way underinvest or overinvest with the wrong expectations. So I yes. like to come in and figure out where that middle ground is. The structure. Um, the structure, the pro not even process, because I hate process. It's more like, uh, I, for example, I, I love working with Canadian companies. Yeah, I know you're in Toronto. <laughs> Canadian yeah. companies are so damn humble that it's like you have marquee customers and the most fantastic product. And this muscle of almost bragging feels foreign. It's a very American uh, attitude to come I know, and say. I know, I know, that's true, that is true. <laughs> but you have to, you know, because confidence sells. Confidence sells fashion, confidence sells brand. You have to be willing to tell the world what you stand for, what you believe in, who you are, um, and do so consistently and confidently. And that is a skill, that is a muscle, to your point. Uh, and I, I love to come in and, and make that happen. If anything, I'm like an inspirational, motivational speaker for brands. It's really, I call it infotainment sometimes, but whatever works. Katie, what's your one or two pieces of advice to marketers or content creators? Um, just on, in general, something that you, you could leave the audience with that you, you just maybe any insights that you found valuable for yourself or, or you see that are important that are maybe not talked about enough. We have to be willing to accept that marketing has immense impact that marketing and the words that we use and the ideas that we put forth into the world have impact. Now, in some cases, that's a wonderful, remarkable thing. It lifts up brands from unknowns to category leaders. In other cases, it develops a really interesting problem. Um, my forthcoming book and documentary called Pandemonium 
uh, explores the danger of companies that say one thing, maybe they support women, LGBTQ rights, Black Lives Matter, and they put out statements and lip service and ads without any meaningful support internally or in the communities or with the movements they seek to co-op. That disconnect has real impact. It creates an illusion of progress. It makes the world look more equitable than it is. And it confuses buyers who really want to invest in companies that align with their values. What we do and what we do in marketing is powerful, but it carries responsibility. Um, many, many, many marketers I have spoken to over the last couple of years as I've been preaching this agree with me and they want to do the right thing. We have to be willing to guide our organizations to do the right thing. Katie, what's, uh, no, that's a, that's a great, that's a, that's I feel a great like I'm running up. for office. I'm like, and vote for me in 2020. Thank you. And here's, here's a call to action. Go grab the book first. Yeah, right. I have to write the book. So right now you can sign up for my newsletter at katie-martel.com. That's a great call to action. We'll link it. We'll link it below. And uh, I was about to say that where would you, where could everybody connect with you online? Uh, Katie-Martel.com has everything I do um, and LinkedIn is a fantastic uh, network for me. I have a lot of followers there and I often get to go live with some really interesting people. Um, so please follow me on LinkedIn and connect with me because it's just, I'm like Sergey. I like to use LinkedIn as a way to challenge ideas, share what I'm learning, share what I'm finding. So I hope to see you there. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was, that was perfect. That was probably the best wrap up I had on the show. <laughs> PR background. I hear you. Exactly. Katie, that was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me and being persistent with me as we get on the schedule. Um, I can be a little bit hard to schedule time with, and I apologize. You are a fantastic interviewer. You've done your homework. You made me think about things in a new way. So um, here's a soundbite for you. I had a great time being your guest. I hope that everyone who listens to this says yes to every time you ask them to be on the show. You are a fantastic interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation with Katie. It was really fun to make and you got some, some interesting takeaways for yourself. And go check out her uh, newsletter and uh, the work that she is doing on the website. It's really cool and uh, it, it is definitely worth your time. If you have any thoughts about the interview or the show, I'm on LinkedIn. You can always connect with me. I'd be, I'm super open to doing that. I'll be moving quite a lot of my communication to the email list because I think it's a little bit more effective for the future episodes. But right now I'm on LinkedIn, on YouTube and here and on the email list. That's going to be all my communication for now. Uh, and I think it's going to work pretty well. Thanks a lot, guys. And uh, I will talk to you and I'll see you in the next video or the next uh, audio, video and audio. Have a good one.